We are, we are blessed to be here, as Andy's already said, and God is going to speak to us uh, this morning through his word. Just to kind of let you in on what's happening over the next few weeks. Not that any of us has a clue, including um, our politicians, but they're doing the, the best job that they can. But for us as Liberty Church, this is almost certainly going to be the last time that we gather until at least the start of uh, December. This week we'll kind of give you some more details about what the next few weeks are going to look like for us. Um, but can I just say for us that are gathered here this morning and encourage us as God's people, over the next four weeks or however long it is going to be, make this your closest companion. Please. Like this is, I'm saying to the guys before, could this be another opportunity to maybe walk better than, than we did the first time around? And I know for a lot of us in this room, we struggled in lockdown 1.0. We neglected this, we neglected prayer, we neglected one another. Don't do that this time. Make this book your closest companion. Keep closer to this than you do to your phone, than you do to the news, than anything else. Keep close to this book. And don't just think that the next four weeks are a bit of a holding pattern, like let's just kind of just wait until, until we're back and we're gathered again. Don't see it like that. These next four weeks, as we go into isolation, a prime, a perfect uh, kind of breeding and feeding ground for the enemy they are because that's where he loves us to be in isolation and he will drive us into isolation and convince us that actually our voice is the best voice that we need to hear and he'll have us waste our time and pull us away from community don't let him do that it is perfect training ground for our enemy but this is also an incredible opportunity for us to grow together it is like what would it look like for us liberty church for the end of this year as we head towards the end of this year not to be not to finish the year frustrated, not to finish the year tired and exhausted and impatient with the situation, but actually to end the year thriving in God's way because we spent these four weeks staying close to him. You know, Micah said something really profound to us at the dinner table last night, didn't you, son? It was wonderful. He said to us this, he said, Dad, Mommy said, um, well, what did he say? Is that I could have forgotten. He said, every day isn't about us. It's all about Jesus. He's five years old and he gets that. Every day is all about Jesus, folks. And where do we find him? In his word. I desperately want us as God's people, as his church, as, as Cornerstone Church, as Liberty Church, as God's people together to finish this year well. Don't see these next four weeks as wasted time. Don't drive yourself into laziness, into apathy. Use these four weeks as an opportunity to grow more in your relationship with Jesus than you ever have. Feast on this daily. Let this be your daily bread. Let this be your living water. Because in here you meet Jesus and he's right. He is better. This book, folks, is perfect. There's not one place in the world that you can go to that will give you more riches than this book. As we look at this uh, series and, um, yeah, go and tell them to turn that over off. That's just rude. Um, as, um, as we start this series, looking at uh, these areas of tension in the Bible, we're going to start this morning looking at God's sovereignty and, and uh, our human moral response. So there's lots of areas in God's word. It is perfect. It all hangs together perfectly, but there are lots of truths in God's word that on the surface, look like, like um, uh, they're, they're pushing in different directions, but we know because God's word is perfect that they aren't. 
next few weeks, we're going to look at how we can be sinners and saints, how God can be full of wrath and full of mercy, how Jesus, as we just talked about, can be fully man and fully God, how the kingdom is already here, but yet it's still coming. And then this morning, we're going to look at God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign, folks. God has a sovereign will for our lives, which will come to pass. But at the same time, every single one of us has a responsibility to walk in it. We see that all over the body, all over the Bible. We see God's sovereignty and our responsibility to walk in it. So think, think of Noah. Uh, Genesis chapter six. God, God is, is is getting fed up with sin increasing across the earth, and He comes to Noah and He says, "I'm going to start again. I'm going to flood uh, the earth. I'm going to start again with you, with your family." And we're going to save your family, Noah. And you can imagine Noah being, being great. We're saved. We're going to be all right. And then what does he say to Noah? Go and build a boat. Don't just stand there and do nothing. Go and build a boat. I'm going to save you. I am going to save you. But you've got to go and do something. You go and build a boat. What about Moses? In the story of the Exodus, we know it, right? So, so uh, uh, God leads his people out of Egypt. He promises he's going to save them from Pharaoh. They get out of, of Egypt and they get to the sea. And then what? How are we going to get across here? You've led us all this way, Moses. How are we going to get across this sea? God says, I am going to save you. You are my, you are my people. Your promises, my promises are going to come through you. I am going to save you. Moses, stretch out your hands. And for as long as Moses' arms are stretched out, the sea parts and the people pass through. God is sovereign. God is going to save them. But Moses has to do something. He has to stretch out his hands. And here's the tension. When we talk about God's sovereignty, when we talk about God being the biggest, the greatest, the the most powerful, the the one who is all-knowing, the one who is all-wise, the one who is all-true. When we talk about his sovereignty, which maybe we could summarize it like this, that nothing happens in creation without God's prior knowledge or permission. That is, that is what God's sovereignty is. He is in complete control. God's sovereignty extends over everything. And that includes our will to believe or reject him as Lord. God is sovereign. Even over our belief or our rejection, but at the same time, this book is crystal clear, folks, that you and I are responsible for our actions. God is sovereign in our salvation, but we are also responsible. And they are two theological truths that are held in tension. And let me just say, in the next 20 minutes, I'm not going to explain uh, why, why that is the case. I'm not going to explain how God can determine who will be saved and who will not. I'm not going to get rid of the tension. I'm not going to pop that balloon, but what I will do God willing, is as we work through some passages in Romans together, I'll hopefully enable us to be able to embrace it as true. Embrace it as true that God is sovereign, but also we are responsible. In this book of Romans, you could turn that we're going to be starting in Romans chapter 9, which is page 945. In this book of Romans, let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles. This is about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And as he's writing, some of the Jews who've been living in Rome have been kicked out of the city. The, the emperor has kicked them out and, and there's been a bit of a change of the guard. So a new emperor comes in and this, is, uh, this emperor is a little bit more sympathetic. So he lets the Jews back in. But while they've been out of Rome, something incredible has happened. The gospel has started to bear fruit. Some of, some of the Jews have begun to, to put their trust in Jesus, put their faith in Jesus. And 
The door has been opened to the Gentiles. These Jews come back in and they're confused. For, for thousands of years, the Jews have thought that, that they were the only ones who could have a relationship with God. That their relationship with God was just for them. It was exclusive. But now because of the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has made clear that actually his salvation is for all who will believe. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, anyone is welcome if they put their faith in Jesus. He makes it clear to the Jews that salvation is based on nothing more than grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. There's your Reformation tidbit from yesterday. These Jews are struggling with it. They struggle with this, this, this door being opened to all who would believe when it's been, it's been their relationship. It's been them who've had a, exclusive access to God. And so Paul writes this letter to them to disarm them, to encourage them, to show them that the old ways are gone. We're starting in chapter 9 here, we're just going to flick through a few truths. But let me just kind of show you what, what Paul's been up to in Romans chapter 1. Paul tells us that there is a problem. And this problem is sin. Romans chapter 2, he tells us that because God is a, is a just God and a, and a God full of justice, that, that he is going to judge sinners for their sin, that the wrath of God will be poured out on sinners. And here's the problem. Romans chapter 3, Paul says, all have sinned. We're all in trouble. Romans chapter 4, Paul says, the only way that we can get out of this trouble is, is through faith. Put in our faith in Jesus Christ and that faith comes as a gift from God. Romans chapter 5, he says all of this started, the trouble started with Adam. Your forefather Adam, he was the first one who sinned and we have all inherited his sin nature. Folks, we are all in trouble, but Jesus has come. Jesus has come as a better Adam in Romans chapter 6. He says because Jesus has come, we can follow him. We no longer have to follow Adam. We can follow Jesus. And because of Jesus' perfect life, because of, because of his death on the cross, because he has risen from the grave, we can have freedom from our sin. We no longer need to be under Adam. We can be under Christ. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, yeah, yeah, but what about this tension that we feel, this tension to, to want to chase after sin, but also want to, want to be, be righteous and follow after Jesus? And Paul says, it's okay. You are no longer condemned by the law. You are free because of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, how can that be? Because the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you. And because the Spirit of God lives in you, there is no one that can stand against you. Satan's sin and death cannot stand against you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are more than conquerors. At the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul says this about God's work of salvation. God foreknew those who were going to be saved. He knows those who are going to be saved. He has sovereignly chosen those who are going to be saved. He uses this word predestination. He has predetermined those who are going to be his from the beginning of the world. So let's just be clear. Question. In that broad sweep of Romans chapter 1 to chapter 8, and we just flew through that, Paul makes it clear who is responsible for our salvation. Who is it? God. It's all him. It's all his work. He is the one who saves us. That's why it's called grace. We are saved by grace. It is a gift from God, a free gift by God that saves sinners like you and I from an eternity in hell. Romans chapter 1 to, to uh, Romans chapter 8 take us from being rebellious sinners to adopted sons and daughters who every day are being shaped to be more like Jesus. And that work, all of that work, is a work 
of God. God saves, God redeems, God adopts. It is all God. And what part do we have to play? Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 8. Make it clear that it is our sin that stands against God. That we stand condemned before God because of our belief, our unbelief and our rebellion. God is sovereign in our salvation, but we are morally responsible for our rejection. And Romans chapter 9 shows us how this plays out in reality. He gives us a real life example. Let's read verses 1 to 5, Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul is talking about the Jews here. And they are Paul's people. Paul was a Jew. These are his people he's talking about. And Paul is saying it is with them, it is with the Jews that God makes his promises. It is to the Jews that that God gives his law. It is to them that they, they have the sacrificial system, this way of being in relationship with God. It is to them that the prophets are given. It is out of them, he says, even out of them, that Christ is born. And yet, they have rejected Jesus. That's why Paul's heartbroken. He is desperate that they don't reject him. But do you, do you see the burden and the anguish in his heart? How deeply desperate he is that they would believe. Did you hear what Paul said? He is willing to be cursed that they would believe. That is incredible. Paul knows that he has no authority or power to save his brothers. That does not stop him doing everything he can to convince them. Folks, we don't resolve this tension. We don't resolve this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility, but we do respond to it. And the first way that we respond is this, we go. God's sovereignty does not remove our responsibility to serve those who don't believe. If you're a Christian here this morning, your response to this tension is to go and to share. The Apostle Paul travels all over your preaching and teaching. He literally puts his life on the line to get the gospel to those who don't believe. He's shipwrecked. He's beaten. He's flogged by the very ones who his heart is breaking for here in Romans chapter 9. Flip over the page to, to chapter 10. Verses 14 to 15, he says this. He says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word, hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Paul is desperate that they are saved. And he knows that that could happen if if they call on Jesus. 
And he knows that if they call on Jesus, then that comes from believing in Jesus. And he knows they might believe in Jesus if they hear the gospel about Jesus. And he knows that they will hear the gospel about Jesus if someone preaches to them about Jesus. And he knows that someone will preach to them about Jesus if Jesus sends someone to preach to them. And so Paul goes. He wants them to be saved. And so he goes and every opportunity he has He shares the good news of Jesus with them. Where is it that Paul goes first when he lands in a new city? Where does he go first? The temple. His heart breaks for the Jews and he desperately wants them to be saved. But here is the heartbreak for Paul. But does he say in verse 18? They have heard. And he goes on in verse 19. They have understood. In verse 20, he goes on again. He says, the Gentiles are being saved all around them. God is showing the Jews that it is by faith that they are saved. He's showing them, he's showing them that, that through the salvation of the Gentiles around them. And look at this in verse 21 of chapter 10. God is holding out his hands, pleading with them, wooing them, directing them, calling them to come in, desperately calling them to come in from their sin, from their darkness and come to him. And yet the Jews refuse to believe. That's an incredible picture of God holding out his hands. One of the great errors that we can make when we're thinking about God's sovereignty and our salvation is to think that he's unjust or think that he is unloving. And if you ever feel that you are going there, picture Picture God holding out his hands, pleading with unbelievers not to reject them. Folks, the Jews are held responsible for their rejection. And so is everyone else who will reject Jesus. So Liberty Church, we need to go. I know that sounds like a stupid thing to say a few days before we go into lockdown. But being in our homes behind closed doors doesn't stop us from getting the gospel out. Kind of challenge us, let's not be lazy about this. Let's not be apathetic about this. Let us see the heartbreak that we see in Paul and let our hearts break for the lost. Let us be willing to, be, to go as far as Paul does, to put our lives on the line, to travel, to do whatever it costs, to get the gospel to those who don't believe because they will be held responsible for their unbelief. Not God, not you and I, but them. So Go. Invite people to church online. Read the Bible with someone. Folks, the the, the very smallest thing that you could do that that could have the most profound effect is this. Pray for them. I don't think that that's just words going up into the air. Your prayers move the hand of our sovereign Father. We need to go and get the gospel to the lost. And if you are walking in unbelief, then there is another clear response in these passages for you this morning, and it's this. You need to believe. And there are reasons why you don't believe. Let me just clear some of them out of the way for you this morning. Flick back to Romans chapter 9. Let's just kind of finish going through this chapter together. Romans chapter 9, Paul carries on in verse 6. He says this, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, forefather Isaac, 
Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. This is the longest sentence in the world. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The Jews that Paul is writing to, they're getting upset because for so long they've been able to fall back on their national identity to get them through. Paul shows them here in this passage Salvation, folks, is not about race. Salvation is not about physical birth. It's about spiritual birth. Paul says, wind the clock back. Go back to the very beginning of of the nation of Israel. Go back to Abraham. Remind yourself of the story of Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old. My dad's just a a couple of years older than 75 years old. Abraham has no children. God says, you're going to have children. You and Sarah are going to have children. They're old. They're very old in age. Through you. I'm going to make my promises come to fruition. Through you, I'm going to make a people and they're going to be a blessing to the nations. Through you, if we trace that promise back, the Savior is going to come. So they take this promise from God and they wait. Months passed, no baby. Years passed, no baby. Decades passed, no baby. They get to 100 years old and Sarah's like, this isn't working, Abraham. We're going to have to do something. Intervene. Why don't you go and sleep with, with our maid servant, Hagar? Abraham goes. Hagar has a baby, Ishmael. That isn't how, that isn't how God said it was going to happen. That Sarah was going to have the baby, but they disobey God. They try and push the promises through themselves. Hagar has a baby called Ishmael. The word Ishmael, the name Ishmael. Anyone know what it means? Striving. Man taking their plans into their own hands. They're trying to force the promise. 100 years old, the baby comes. Sarah has a baby, Isaac, which means laughter. God was showing them that it's not about your performance. It's not about about you forcing these these things through. It is about believing and trusting in me. Trusting in my promises. Trusting in my sovereign will. We have this baby, Isaac. Isaac marries Rebecca, and God gives them a promise of children as well. And God says this. He says, the elder will serve the younger. Your, your youngest child will be the servant of your, no, the other way around. Your oldest child will be the servant of your youngest child. And that wouldn't have been the case in that culture in those days. It would always be the firstborn that would be most important. Rebecca gives birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is born first. He comes out first. Esau comes out first and is followed by Jacob. Anyone know what Jacob means? Deceiver. Jacob follows after Esau comes out and and they grow up and Jacob becomes a little bit of a mummy's boy. He gets into into household chores and cooking a little bit while Esau's out on the plains and he's he's, he's, um, um, shepherding and he's a bit of a warrior type figure. Anyway, Esau's out one day. He's so hungry, comes back home. He's starving, sits down at the table. Jacob's been making some stew and he says to Jacob, "I'm, I'm, I'm famished. Can I just have a bowl of stew? Jacob, the deceiver, says, yeah, of course you can have a, a bowl of stew. In exchange for, for your birthright, if you give me your birthright, if you let me have the privilege of being the older brother, then you could have a bowl of stew. Can I just say, as an aside, we do stupid things when we're hungry. And I don't just mean physically hungry. We do stupid things when we're hungry and try and find comfort and try and find fulfillment in things which are not ours that. 
Esau, Esau takes the bowl of stew, gives Jacob his birthright, and he becomes the one who is favored. He becomes the one who takes all of the privileges. Esau, I hated, it says. That is a quote from God. God isn't saying that he actually hated him. This is a Hebrew idiom. And it means that, that it is, uh, it is um, uh, one who he didn't prefer. He's saying that he prefers Jacob. Jacob has the position of the one who the promise is going to come through. It's the same word that is used in Luke 18. You know when Jesus says, if you, if you want to follow me, you need to hate your mother and father. Jesus isn't literally saying you need to go home and, and, and be swearing at your mom and dad and hate them and, and leave the home. He isn't saying that. He's saying, I need to be priority. I need to be first. That's what he's saying here. Jacob was first. Paul is reminding the Jews here in Romans chapter 9. Through the example of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, your salvation is not based on your performance. What does he say in verse 15? God will have mercy on whom he has mercy and have compassion on whom he has compassion. So if you're not a Christian, you need to ask yourself, where do you stand before God? God is clear that only he can save you from sin, Satan and death. And there is no amount of performance, there is no amount of status, there is no amount of privilege that you can put in front of God. None of it matters. God's salvation is not dependent on your performance. And that is good news. Because that means it doesn't matter how good you have been. And also it doesn't matter how bad you have been. It doesn't matter how infrequent you are at church or how deep you are entrenched in your sin or how much you have rejected God. You are not beyond his salvation. And you might come back and say, well, if God has already suddenly determined those who are saved, I I don't need to do anything. I might just sit back and wait. Let me bring you back to the tension. You are responsible for your unbelief, not God. He has sovereignly called those that will be his and those who are his will turn to him in belief. So turn to him today. Don't wait. And he will use you whether you like it or not. The end of of the passage here in in verses 14 to 18, uh, we see Pharaoh. I won't read it now, but you read of Pharaoh being a wicked leader. You know the story from the Exodus. God uses Pharaoh's hard heart for his sovereign purposes. God allows Pharaoh to be be, uh, risen up, to rise up as a world superpower. And then what does he do? He brings Moses to lead a rebellion against him. Moses, the shepherd boy, Moses, the murderer, Moses, the, the, the nervous man with the, with the speech impediment. He uses this man to lead a revolution against the world superpower to show his power. And Moses wasn't anyone special, but God used him for his glorious purpose. Folks, God does not need any of us, but he wants us. Not because we're qualified, but because he wants us. So turn to him today. The right response to this tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility is to believe. Not to sit and wait, but to believe today. And if you already do, the response for you is to serve those who don't. To get the gospel to them, whatever the cost. We might not understand this tension, but that's okay. In fact, we're in good company. Paul felt the same. If you flick over to chapter 11, Listen to what he says as he closes out this this discussion on Israel. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We won't resolve this, t- this tension. We can't resolve this tension. And that's okay. Because God is infinitely wiser. God is infinitely more merciful and infinitely more loving than any of us. And because he is, we don't need to wrestle against this tension and try and pop the balloon. Instead, like Paul in chapter 11, we can embrace it with belief and embrace it with service. And we can trust in the good character of God and with Paul say with all conviction, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Yes, Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. Thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you, Jesus, that it is through you that we can have faith. We thank you that it comes as a gift, it comes as grace. And and where that is needed, we pray that you would give it this morning. Remove our unbelief and help us to believe. And Father, for your church this morning, we want to go. So help help us be fueled by the gospel. Help us to be fueled by a burden for the lost. Help us to be willing to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to those who need to believe. God, we trust in your character. We trust that your character is good. We trust trust in your sovereign purposes. And even though we can't explain and understand this fully, bring us to a place where we're able to come to you and embrace this as truth. And like Paul, come to you in a place of worship and adoration. Be able to say with with full conviction to you be the glory forever amen help us holy spirit strengthen us where we are weak bring belief where there is blindness and darkness and we ask that you do that for the glory of jesus amen